0: Hi everyone and welcome to this bonus episode of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the Ging variety. Um, Great to be here with you again. You know who we are. You you don't need us to introduce ourselves, but how are you, Paul?
1: I'm good, thanks, David. How are you? Good.
0: So what the hell are we doing for this bonus episode? Please do tell.
1: Yeah, okay. So we thought we would test our guest, Matt Goodluck. And for those of you who are uh, Patreon supporters, you now have access to this immediately. And we've we've just interviewed Matt and we've asked him all sorts of questions in relation to Prog Rock. And as a reminder for those who might be seeing this a little bit later, he is, if he's not Australia's top mind when it comes to knowledge of the world of Prog Rock, he's, he's up there in the top five. He's certainly in the discussion. We thought we'd test him. So what we've done is we've gone on the social media, and we've taken some real quotes from random people on various prog rock clips they've seen or out of prog rock forums or, you know, the various social media formats. And they've just been like one or two sentences. It's, it's a statement or a comment or an opinion. And we're going to throw those at Matt and just ask for a reaction to see whether does he agree does he disagree what would his response be to seeing something like that now some of the comments are fairly non-controversial and just fairly friendly but we've thrown in a couple of slightly more challenging ones in there just to see uh, see if we can catch Matt off his guard so that's that's what we're doing for a little bit of fun Matt has not seen these questions before and I'm I'm just really looking forward to seeing his genuine reaction to them as they come across so that's what we're doing David
0: uh, great. And to be honest, I haven't read them myself yet. And I'm thinking I may not read them until the show just to shock the hell out of myself. So I think that that's a great approach. So, and thank you, Paul, for, for putting all the work in on this. So yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. And uh, let's go join Matt. All right, Matt, welcome back. And here's the really fun part of the show. Um, this is where we test you, hopefully familiar, humiliate you a little bit, maybe. <laughs>
2: well, I'm um, nervous now. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: be, be nervous. But no, this should be a lot of fun and obviously still on the topic of prog rock. And, um, Paul, I, I'm thinking maybe you'll kick off.
1: Yeah, thanks, David. So as I explained to our listeners slash viewers, Matt, before when we filmed our intro just, just before now, what we've done is we've sourced some commentary on social media and we all know that the gold of all social media comes in the comments and people can write all sorts of
2: things
1: (laughs) all these comments are prog rock related some of them have a, a more of a keyboard flavor some of them are a bit more generic and david and i are going to take turns reading these comments to you and all we want from you is a just your reaction and you know feel free to add a bit of extra value in commentary in terms of the topic discussed. Some of the comments are fairly non-controversial. Some of them are a little bit more controversial. So are you ready?
2: I'm ready as I'll I'll ever
1: be. Yep. Fantastic. This first comment is on the subject of Yes's tales from topographic oceans. (laughs) Say no more. (laughs) And this is what they've said one of the most criminally underrated albums of all time, especially when this was slammed by critics?
2: Mm. Well, that's an interesting one. I I, I certainly don't think it's as bad as what some people have uh, said over the years. Look, I guess the album itself was ripe for being ridiculed. I mean, it was a double concept album, Uh, loosely based on something called the Shastric Scriptures, which John Anderson came up with, which was kind of an Eastern philosophy type thing. Four songs over four sides. Um, I mean, it's overblown. It's, you know, self-indulgent. It's it's prog, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Look, I think there's some fantastic moments on the album. I think there are a few moments that, you know sort of they start to wander up their own backside a little bit and famously rick wakeman even couldn't handle it uh on that tour it's well noted that he was so bored in some sections he uh, sent his roadie off to get him a curry which he ate on stage (laughs) while he was playing um and he left the band after that album but look i don't think it's as bad In, in hindsight it's certainly not as bad as what people made it out to be there's a lot to get through and you know I think the most common um criticism against double albums is that you know it's probably a really good album with a lot of filler around it and I think there's probably a little bit a bit of that in uh in tales but um look I think it's uh, an album worthy of re very
0: diplomatic <laughs> that's great so the, so the next one, Matt, and I love this on a whole bunch of levels, um, is uh, comparing and contrasting the two most well-known, si- well, the only w- well-known um, singers of Genesis. And so someone's uh, tweeted, Peter Gabriel is Star Trek and Phil Collins is Star Wars.
2: <laughs> well, that's interesting. Well, I never really watched Star Trek, so I can't really comment uh, too much on that. So um, is, it fair
0: to, is it fair to say, and Paul, I'd love your thoughts here, I'm guessing the... the um, This has been posted by a Trekkie because as a general rule, Trekkies tend to think it's much more, what you call, scientifically accurate, more reasonable science fiction, Whereas Star Wars is a little bit pop culture and trashy. So I I think that's what they're alluding to. Well, I I
2: assume that that might be where they were going with it. (laughs) Look, there's no doubt for hardcore Genesis fans, Peter Gabriel is where it's at, Um, but I think Phil's gotten a bad rap over the years. He really has. And uh, first of all, I just want to say he is an amazing drummer, first and foremost, an incredible drummer. Um, and, look, you can't uh, diss his songwriting abilities either. I mean, the guys, I heard that he, um, he's one of the very few artists to have sold over a million albums with his main band, but also as a solo artist. And I think Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney are the only other ones. So love him or hate him, I mean, that takes some skill to be able to achieve that. And I think because he wrote all these sort of ballads over the 80s and that, he, he sort of gets tarred with that Mr. Boring brush. Um, but, look, he's written some fantastic songs as well. And, look, last night after the interview, I was inspired to put on uh, uh, Genesis's self-titled album from 1983. And, uh, you know, it's got the hits on their mama and that's all and stuff like that. It's a fantastic album. I think, you know, after Duke, it's probably the best thing they did in the 80s as far as I'm concerned. So I, I'm not going to diss Phil. I think Phil's a champion and I feel sorry for him at the moment that he's suffering mm. some bad uh, health issues. Uh, must be hard being up on stage and being confined to a chair like that and not being able to drum, do what he loves most. Um, now nah, I'm, I'm giving Phil thumbs up. Yeah, like it. And... Uh, I think, yeah, I'm a bit of a Phil
0: fan too. And I don't think I mentioned on this podcast, one of the videos that stands out to me of just how gutsy Phil and how on top of his game he was at the time was the filming of um, Do They Know It's Christmas and and, um, Live 8. And I just remember there's a seven or eight minute documentary about that and you see him laying down one of the drum tracks in one of the big open studios there. Was that done at Abbey Road? No, it was a different studio, I think. Sure. Yeah, I don't think it was Abbey Road. Sorry, it was a different studio. Um, And all lined around the walls are all the megastars that are are singing and the other drummers and the other guitar players or whatever. And he's laying down this track with literally 50 people looking on. And you go, that's got to take guts to do that.
2: For sure. You know, when he took over from Peter Gabriel in Genesis, it it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, something that was naturally going to happen. They were looking for a, a replacement lead singer at the time. And Phil had always done backing vocals in the band and he'd even sung lead on a couple of minor tracks at that point. And uh, so he was intimately familiar with the material. He had a great voice and, you know, they had such difficulty in finding a replacement that he just sort of started singing in rehearsals and it it sort of got pointed out at one point, why don't you do it? And, you know, he didn't really have the confidence, believe it or not, back then, but, you know, he gave it a go and it it famously went so well that uh, he took over that position. Um, look, I, I give him props for for doing that. It took a lot of guts to replace Gabriel, and uh, I think he did a fine job. Yeah, they turned look, into a very different band at that point, but they did, you know. So they should. I mean, it would have been wrong for them to continue with the costumes and the makeup and all of that sort of stuff. And as a non-Trekkie, I just
0: I think that tweet's just unfair. And I I do love Peter, Peter Gabriel, so I'm torn. But um, I think Star <laughs> Trek's a bit boring at times. So, but Peter Gabriel, I wouldn't accuse of that.
1: Nothing wrong with Star Wars. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I confess to loving both Star Trek and Star Wars, so there you go. As long as you don't get them mixed up. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, and offend <laughs> the hardcore fans. Right, let's move on to a band that I believe you like, Matt,
2: Rush. Oh, so I've heard here, one or two of their songs.
1: Yeah, I, so, I, so I understand. <laughs> here is some commentary on Rush's Geddy Lee in the context of his keyboard playing. Even though Getty was a monster bassist, he still seems to be one of the few to make keyboards cool. Monster musician.
2: <laughs> well, I can't argue with that, and I, and I am biased, but here's a guy who is playing bass like a monster. He's playing bass pedals. He's playing keyboards, and he's singing. And occasionally he'd been known to move the mic stand with his nose. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the guy is an amazing musician, and to be able to juggle those, all those jobs at once on stage, I mean, it takes takes a certain kind of musician to be able to do that. You know, Rush were under a lot of pressure, particularly as the '80s started coming in, uh, to bring on board another member to to make their job easier on stage, and um, they respected the chemistry that the three of them had so much that they just didn't want to upset that by bringing in somebody else in and into that environment. So, uh, you know, they basically made the decision that, no, we're just going to work harder. And, uh, you know, Alex Lifeson played a little bit of keyboards on stage and some uh, pedals as well, but Geddy Lee really took on the lion's share there. And, uh, I mean, just watch any of their live concerts and and see what he's up to. Um, It's amazing. You know, I've heard some of the isolated tracks getting off the keyboard topic for a bit, but just to, to demonstrate about his bass playing. Listening to what he's playing in isolation, you've got no idea when you're actually listening to the album. But when it's isolated, you think, my God, the, the intricacy and detail of his playing. But then to be able to think like a keyboard player as well and how you're going to fit the keyboards around, you know, some of their musical arrangements, its it beggars belief. You know, I mean, he, uh, he's certainly a hero of mine, that's for
0: sure. And. I mean, I don't know what he's like as a keyboard player. I haven't watched a lot of him playing keyboards. The only thing I would be certain is he's a shitload better than me. <laughs> but, but that's a fairly low, low base. But, yeah, I think you're right. On top of doing everything else, I'm just not sure of the claim in the tweet um, that he's one of the few to make keyboards cool because,
2: honestly, have Rush ever been cool? Well, they are now. They are. That's true, actually. They, they, they finally now. became cool after all these years. And, uh, look, he's certainly not a virtuoso keyboard player. He's not in the same ranks as your Rick Wakeman's and your no. Keith Emerson's, but he never sort of tried to be either. No. The keyboards were more to add an extra texture and colour into the music and really to augment the, the rest of the instrumentation, and he did a fine job at that.
1: Yeah. I would probably take that question a step further, David, and say, are uh, keyboards cool at all? <laughs> well, surely, that- surely you guys make
0: it cool. no. And it's, it's yeah. looks, some people think keytar's are cool, and that's another whole episode we should do. Um, I think oh, if, yeah, if yeah. you're over the age of twenty five, you should not be strapping on a, a keytar. Oh, I let's agree. Let's,
1: let's do an episode: Are keytar's cool or not? I, I reckon. <laughs> let, let's do that. I'm serious. We're doing that, and we'll good. do a
0: debate. And except yeah.
1: all three of us will
0: be arguing
1: the not case. I
2: don't. I don't think that's going to be a very long episode. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're gonna get some hate for that. Um. Yeah, I know. And I
0: know there are some good middle-aged people that use ketas and good on you, but you're obviously a bit thinner than me.
1: All right. So <laughs> write in, all Right in, write in and tell us you hate it. We don't mind. All all feedback that's, is welcome. No that's problem. That's right. Um, the next one, Matt's in regards to
0: Kansas. Uh, and we had the pleasure of having Tom Brislin from Kansas on a few episodes back. So the the initial um, comment uh, on Facebook, it looks like, for this one, is um, these guys were actually a cut above the other prog rock bands of the 70s like Sticks. Dust in the Wind is still awesome today. And then a reply from someone is they were millions of levels below British prog.
2: <laughs> well, that's a little bit unfair. But, look, I take the point. Uh, like I explained earlier about some of the American prog bands, they, they were very different to the British prog bands that, that um, started out. And I think one of the key differences was that um, they were still writing uh, very melodic, almost pop-friendly songs, but within a progressive framework. So, um, you know, not all American prog bands are like that. I should put that as a disclaimer. And and as time went on, Americans really started to get into that purity of progressive rock. Uh, I remember going to the Prog Fest in LA in the late 90s, and uh, I was actually with... um, Clive Nolan's band, Arena, and Arena were considered to be like Bon Jovi on that that lineup. You know, the, a lot of the purist fans thought, no, this is no good. There's not enough Mellotrons in it and the songs don't go for 20 minutes and there's not enough time signature changes. And so they didn't, you know, the purist crowd didn't really appreciate the melodic sensibilities. But Kansas was a band like that that were fantastic musicians. They also played to that melodic sensibility, but they incorporated that. Uh, progressive framework, and you know, before Tom Brislin's time in the band, Steve Walsh, who was the lead vocalist, was predominantly the keyboard player, and he played some amazing things. I mean, have a listen to a track called "The Spider" from uh, the Point of No Return album. There's some amazing playing on that track, and uh, I actually sent Paul a photograph of him not too long ago, where we he was sort of doing a handstand on his keyboard. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was definitely some acrobatics involved in that performance, or some substances, I don't know which, but uh, uh, very entertaining. But, no, they were a great band. They did some fantastic albums. I think they kind of lost their way in the 80s a little bit. They got a little bit too into that AOR sort of style. But certainly early on, uh, you know, they almost fused some country elements uh, with uh, the progressive rock scene and and things like that. Um, Great band. Well worth checking out their uh, early albums. Left Overture is probably one of my all-time favourite prog albums, so that's saying something.
1: There you go. High, high praise from aficionado Matt Goodluck for <laughs> the work of Kansas. Now, this next question uh, is close to my heart, Matt. I, uh, as, as David revealed in the main episode, uh, neither he nor I are experts on prog rock, which is why we have you here to uh, guide us through the, uh, the treacherous waters of prog, and you're doing a great <laughs> job, Matt. But I do know a bit about Pink Floyd. And one of the things I know about Pink Floyd is that it is sometimes up for debate whether they're really a prog band or not. And this particular commenter on social media has said, I think Pink Floyd ceased
2: to be prog with Dark Side of the Moon. I strongly disagree with that, Uh, especially when you listen to uh, Wish You Were Here. I mean, you've got an album bookended by two epics for a start. Uh, which, you know, both of those um, parts of Shine On are, are very prog. You know, you've got synth solos and, uh, you know, lots of big, long instrumental pieces in various time signatures and things like that. Uh, you've got uh, conceptual pieces. Uh, the Animals album that followed that is, uh, is fantastic. It's full of epics, that, that album. Uh, and let's not forget The Wall. You, you've got what many consider to be the mother of all concept albums there um i i would say they probably lost a little bit of their progressive edge following the wall uh i mean they certainly had their moments and i love what came after but um maybe not quite as much of a, a prog band at, at that point um a good friend of mine uh, uh once said to me he'd forgotten that uh, pink floyd kind of turned into foreigner in the late 80s <laughs> and i think i know what he means by saying that um i wouldn't go that far myself but uh no, definitely a prog band through and through. They were very different to all the other um, big prog bands, though. They weren't as um, uh, bombastic musically. Uh, and I think that's one of the key things. Um, I would argue that maybe they weren't all virtuoso musicians like uh, perhaps the, the guys in Yes were, for example. Um, they, they didn't sort of... Uh, uh, disappear up their own backside, as I said earlier. Um, they tended to do that a little bit in the early days, particularly when they were going through their experimental phase. Um, I think with Dark side they, they reached a point where they were able to hone their songwriting skills and uh, come up with more concise songs, which a lot of musicians say is harder than writing 20-minute epics, you know, because you have to sort of condense all of the, the information that you want to get across, all the messaging uh, within the space of, you know, four or five minutes. And that can be harder than having a, a 20 or 30-minute palette to work with. So, um, you know, I think it was more that they, they streamlined their songwriting process, but they certainly were no less progressive for it.
0: Nice take,
2: Yeah. Would you agree, uh- Paul?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. And I don't call myself an expert on prog rock, but if I look at an album like Animals, which keen followers of this podcast will know is my favorite Pink Floyd album, uh, that, that's as progressive as anything, as far as I'm concerned. You've got multi, you've got long songs, multiple movements, um, tricky time signatures, and some really clever musical ideas to go with uh, amazing lyrics. And now, my opinion of Pink Floyd in the world of prog, If I look at a lot of the other prog bands, I think one of the things that makes Pink Floyd perhaps a little bit more popular and maybe is one of the reasons they were more successful is the the lyrical themes during Pink Floyd's most successful era are quite universal when relatable to anyone where I think some of the other prog bands, again, as a, as a layperson on the outside, I, I feel like they're singing about really obscure things that like, you know, planets and fairies and elves and things that are a bit <laughs> hard to relate to where, you know, dark side of the moon is about things like birth, death, madness, time, money, things that we all have to deal with in our lives. And so I think that, that can perhaps separate them from other prog bands, but I, I feel they're definitely prog. And That's just
0: to so- note to our watchers, um, any death threats need to come through to Paul directly and not the <laughs> yep. People Chronicles email address about the fairies and elves comment.
2: <laughs> it's actually a really good point you raised, though, because I, I agree with you on that uh, in regards to Pink Floyd's lyrics, um, which obviously were largely written by Roger Waters early on. Uh, I would say Rush, particularly later on in their sort of 80s, 90s period, Neil Pitt, who wrote all of the lyrics, he started writing lyrics, uh, he moved away from the fantasy elements and starting re- started to write about relatable things that, that people could relate to in in, uh, in there, whereas a lot of those early bands did write about fantastical themes and uh, very abstract or surreal elements. Um, John Anderson from Yes was famously known for just making up words that sounded good. <laughs> and I think, you know, um, not to sort of digress too much here, but um, this was one of the things that... Uh, Younger people in the mid '70s started uh, having an issue with with regards to prog, and and that was the lyrics. The lyrics weren't speaking to them and their, um, their reality, and and that was one of the things that kind of um, caused punk to form, was a, a reaction to that. It was like th- this music isn't speaking to us, and uh, you know there was a certain uh, elitism in. Um, the, the virtuoso playing styles of a lot of these prog bands and, and the punk movement was all about we want anyone to be able to get up and play music regardless of their abilities and, and to speak about things that are affecting us and, and that's what kind of caused that uprising at the time. Excellent. Uh, on this one,
0: Matt, is we've mentioned the Mellotron a few times and we talked in the main episode about how it is quite a strange instrument using tape loops um, so someone's said, made the comment, this is amazing. Why did this instrument go extinct?
2: Well, I, I don't think it, it went extinct. It's no. it's still alive and well. In fact, they're, they're making, uh, uh, digital versions of, uh, the Mellotron now. And the, the Mellotron samples are very popular. And I think the big thing, I mean, I'm, you guys are the keyboard players here. I'm, I'm just a, an amateur, but, um, I think one of the main issues with the Mellotron was it's, uh, unpredictability in in terms of staying in tune and things like that. It was prone to uh, going out of whack with uh, changes in temperature and being moved around on tour and things like that. It would, you know, the tapes would get damaged. And so it wasn't a very reliable instrument. It was a great instrument to use in the studio, but not so much on stage. And uh, there was a lot of care that had to go into its upkeep and things like that. So I don't think that it became extinct. I think if you if you're lucky enough to find an original now they they go for all sorts of crazy money. But um, uh, you know if you can find one, grab one.
0: That's right. <laughs> yeah, a working if one in you particular. Can't
2: get a get a download or something like that. It's a magical sound.
1: Yeah, I think the Mellotron was as just as reliable as you would expect a a machine full of man- magnetic tape that weighed. Uh, you know, God knows how much it weighed and had to be, you know, trucked around all over the countries. It was just as reliable as as you would expect it to be, which is not very.
2: Exactly. (laughs) I remember when um, Clive Nolan actually bought his Mellotron, I think he may have gotten rid of it since, but he bought his from uh, a guy named Martin Orford, who was the keyboard player for a band called IQ, who was sort of contemporaries of Pendragon in the 80s. And uh, I remember Clive bought the Mellotron off of him, and uh, had it restored by Mellotron Archives in in the UK. And uh, when he bought it in the little cupboard down the bottom, there was old kebab wrappers and things like that. And (laughs) it was just taking up space and uh, not doing a lot in Martin's uh, studio. So uh, Clive took it on and uh, restored it to its former glory. And uh, I think he played it on a few of the albums. But um, like I say, I think he may have uh, moved that on in, in recent years.
1: Yeah, and I think we can all agree they sound wonderful. They're wonderful sounding, uh, you know, it's seminal sound, but uh, it's a lot easier to use the digital versions these days, I must say. For sure. Now let's talk about Dream Theatre, a band that you've worked with, Matt.
2: Yeah, I have. I was very lucky to to go on tour with them several times, uh, both when I was living in the UK and uh, and Europe and uh, also back here in Australia. So I don't
1: know how you would characterize Dream Theatre's sound, but this... Poster has quite succinctly said, Dream Theater is if like Rush and Metallica had a baby.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good description, really. Um, Dream Theater came about in the sort of mid to late 80s. I mean, they didn't release their first album until 89. Um, but it's exactly right. They, they shared uh, those progressive influences like Rush, um, Yes, Marillion, bands like that. But they also really loved the, the heavier side of things from Iron Maiden and Metallica and uh, and those kinds of bands. So they grew up with both and and basically they decided to fuse those styles. Rush was really probably one of the very first progressive metal bands because they had that very harder edge, but they brought in the technical sensibilities to their songwriting and arrangements. And I think that really appealed to, to up and coming bands like Dream Theater uh, who wanted to sort of uh, move move ahead with that sound and, and make it even heavier but even more technical and um, they they did so very well their first album didn't do great things uh, but was a very promising start um, they had a lot of issues with uh, finding and sustaining a, a lead singer and they did that with their second album images and words and that is really what uh, what took them off to the next level and uh, you know the there's some bands in music that are responsible for a, a million um, imitators, and, and I think Dream Theatre is certainly one of those bands, because after the popularity of images and words, every other metal band was incorporating progressive elements and wanting to sound like Dream Theatre. So uh, they were certainly uh, guilty of um, in- inspiring a million imitations. Uh, but they look, they're an amazing band. There's no doubt about their technical proficiency, and uh, and yeah, I would class them as as one of those early progressive metal bands, and and like you say, a good combination of Rush and Metallica there.
0: <laughs> nice. Uh, and the last one, Matt, and I we actually talked about this a, a little bit briefly yesterday. So about when Keith Emerson would end up sticking, um, thanks to Lemmy, sticking knives into his Hammond C three. Um, <laughs> I like how you ended this, Paul, on a lowbrow note. So the, the comment is um, the guy could really abuse his organ.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, uh. <laughs> well, I think I may have alluded earlier that Keith Emerson was almost like the, the keyboard equivalent to Jimi Hendrix. And we all know what Jimi Hendrix would get up to with his guitar. You know, he'd set it alight and smash it on the ground and break it into a million pieces. And, and Keith was kind of doing a very similar thing, you know, rocking the organ back and forth, pulling it over on top of him. He was jumping over it and stabbing it. And, look, really what it comes down to is that sense of theatricality, and, and that was something that went so well with prog. Um, you know, the music was bombastic and, and uh, over the top, and so, um, you know, the musicians wanted to uh, represent that live on stage. How can they make things interesting to, to watch rather than just Guys with their heads down, working away at, at the music, and uh, Keith was a you know very flamboyant musician and and prone to to all sorts of um, stunts on stage, uh, just like Peter Gabriel was in in regards to his costumes and makeup and things like that. So um, look, I, th- I think it was fantastic. It, it gave people something to talk about, something to look at on stage, and uh, it was just something different. And you know, I think when you go and see a band. You know, Nobody likes to see a band that's just very static and just standing there with their heads down. And so give the audience something to look at. And, uh, you know, ELP weren't afraid of uh, going over the top and, and giving their audiences something to talk about. And, and, you know, it was both good and bad because people used it against them as much as they did for them. So, yeah, what a champion. Great answer. <laughs> Excellent. You survived, mate.
0: We didn't humiliate you either. So I think well done. You know, so really appreciate, appreciate you taking that extra time. And um, yeah, it's, it's been great talking everything prog. And as I mentioned in the main episode, um, you know, we score someone like Jordan Rudess, you're the first one back with us to to help us navigate those waters.
2: (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure guys. Oh, it's been great fun. And uh, like I said, yesterday, most people aren't as interested in hearing me talk about this sort of stuff. So it's, uh, it's great to get it all off my chest. All those years of, reading about it and listening to it. I'll finally put it to good use on the Keyboard Chronicles. <laughs> Our pleasure. Thanks, Matt.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I. I think we both enjoyed the hell out of that.
2: Yeah, I, think mate,
0: good fun. I think good Matt fun. did as well. So, um, yeah, hope you enjoyed that, that bonus piece of content. And a huge thank you again to our Patreon supporters. We really do appreciate what you do, and we love bringing this extra content for to you. So, yeah, thank you again to you all. We really do appreciate it, and we look forward to seeing you back here for both uh, the general episodes and more bonus content very soon. Mm-hmm.